This past week, on a Wednesday, I got up very early because I had to drive out to make an 8 o'clock meeting in Connecticut. Now, I am not a veteran of commuting and driving. For many years, I was a school teacher, and my commute was about 18 minutes all back road, so I didn't know what to expect. So, of course, I got up at about 5, left my house at about 5.30, and steeled myself for what I was concerned was going to be Hartford traffic. None came, and I arrived plenty early to meet Pastor Matt and the good people of Revelation Church. I was going to have the opportunity to observe their staff meeting and to meet with Matt and a few key leaders of their church. And here's something really, I think, helpful for you to hear. We live in a time where so many people think they know best and so many people go on power trips. It's helpful for you to know who your pastor submits himself to. I submit myself to two pastors. One is in his 60s. He's in North Dakota right now, but he's returning in a few weeks. His name is Pastor Stan. He's also my dad. I also submit myself under the authority, leadership, guidance, direction, and the prayerful support of Matt, a pastor in his 40s. We'll touch on this a little bit later because I'm going to invite you to think the same way. Who do I let have spiritual authority in my life and how am I having ongoing discipleship? But regardless, so I get there. And to say that this church is a little different than ours is an understatement. I've likened, and I, I, it was wonderful, but I've likened the staff meeting to imagine if you had a church staff meeting on a pirate ship. It was just terrific. And we had a great time, and then I had an opportunity to speak to Matt, Pastor Matt, and here's the thing. When you drive two hours really early in the morning, uh, fearing the heart for traffic, and you get there, you don't want to come in unprepared. So I had 10 questions I was going to ask him, and it took us about three hours to get through them, and at the end, I think I had exhausted him. But one of the things I got from him that I really appreciated, we were discussing just various ways to lead the ministry, but also to let faith be real in our lives. And he said, David, you know, on most things, when it comes to God and his will for your life, your marriage, your church, uh, if you can't say amen, you have to say ouch. And I said, what? And so he said, well, think about it like this. Imagine your spouse comes to you and says, hey, we need to make our marriage a priority. We need to spend more time together. Now, if you're a Christian husband or a Christian wife, if your spouse says this and you're under God, you say, amen, of course we do. But if you've let everything else become a priority and you just feel like you're caught in the storm like our friend Jonah will get there, you can say, ouch, that hurts my pride, that hurts my ego, but you don't understand. With, with your children, maybe your kid comes up to you Maybe your kid's 3, 13, 23, doesn't matter. Your kid says, hey, um, we should really spend more time together. Let me make it even more real. I have a three-year-old. She thinks she's going to be a fire chief right now. Isn't it funny how kids have these random things when they're little? I wanted to be a scientist. I'm not wearing a lab coat right now. So who knows if she'll be a firefighter. But she said to me Thursday morning as I was getting ready, she said, Daddy, we haven't played firefighters this morning yet. Now, could I have said, ouch, I'm too busy? Sure, but I thought in my head, amen, okay, let's do it. The church does not exist, my friends, to just be a place where we come for one hour on a Sunday, glance our watch, hope the minister 
doesn't go too long, and then head out. The church exists to be the missional center of our lives, to let faith be real, to provide a place where we as a Christian or even someone seeking comes with other Christians and is able to see what is Christianity, what does it look like to be a community of faith, what does it look like to see Christian marriages, Christian parenting, and how can we do good from here? Not that we want to come and spend 90 hours a week in the church building, but we come together as a church. It's our missional center. And then we have an opportunity to love and serve and honor God and to love our neighbor because we have this community that launches us out. Now, if I say that to you and you say, ouch, I'm too busy, that kind of expectation, that is bogus, David. Well, I'd invite you. You're going to see a little bit that we're going to work on our amen because here's the thing. Jonah struggles with this. This is the story of Jonah. He consistently just doesn't get it. He consistently, over and over and over, he consistently doesn't say amen, which is so be it, God, but he says, ouch, oh, I don't know. God, you want me to go where? God, you saved me? That's not cool, God. God, we were successful. God, you provided me shade in my misery. I just showed you the whole book. That was the entire book, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now, here's the thing with our friend Jonah. Sometimes with books in the Bible, uh, has anybody ever sat in church and been like, I'm so confused, what is that preacher getting on about? I have. You don't have to put up your hand. Now, I want to make it very clear. Jonah is set. The Israeli people in this time are not broken up into Republicans, Democrats. Twelve ethnic tribes. Ten of them, there's a civil war, ten of them go up north, become Israel, two go south, become Judah. Jonah lives right after this fracture under this king Jeroboam, and he lives up north, and from there, God says, hey, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the seat of power of Assyria, and those are the enemies. And so there's a lot of reasons that Jonah says, wow, this isn't great. But the book's not about him. You could be like, what? The book of Jonah is titled Jonah. What are you talking about, David? It's a short book about God. Notice at the very beginning, if you open up your Bible, if you have it, notice who speaks the very first words in Jonah. God does. Notice who speaks the very last words in Jonah. God does. It actually ends with cows. I'm not making that up. Now, here's the thing about this book. It really has three central themes, and we're going to hit on this because we're calling our series Faith After Failure. All of us fail. If you haven't ever failed, you can go now, and you're all set. We're launching you into ministry. The door is right there, and a lot of work for you to do. We're going to give you a checklist of ways to serve Jesus. For the rest of us, we need some faith after failure. So here's three central messages. Number one, God cares about my enemy. Whoever I cannot stomach, God loves that person. God cares for me when I'm disobedient. When I act in a way that I can't stomach, God cares for me. And over everything, God is the sovereign Lord. A theological term, what does that mean? Things aren't random. Things aren't chaos. God has the ultimate control, veto power. He lets some things happen. But ultimately, he's working through events. He's working for circumstances. We see this in the biblical narrative. Not many stories, but how many stories, my friends? One story in the Bible, God's redemptive historical initiative on behalf of creation. We see that. And we see all this in the book of Jonah. In a way, 
Jonah lets us know the entire Bible. It lets us know about God, ourselves, and the biblical narrative. And so, there are times that God is speaking through his word. The Holy Spirit nudges the believer and tells us to do something, or other Christians tell us something, and we don't say amen, we say ouch. So our big idea for today is I'm working on my amen. I'm trying to get to the point where I say, so be it, Lord. You have plans and purposes for my life. I've got all this other stuff. I'm working on saying, amen. I'm working on saying, so be it, Lord. I will be obedient. I'll be faithful. Now, nobody gets it perfect. I told you this is faith after failure. If you think that your pastor or your elders or your church leaders or the pastors that I submit myself to, if you think any of us get it perfect, do we? Only one guy in the Bible gets it perfect. His name is Jesus. All the rest of us do not. So I want to tell you that do we say amen or ouch when God sends us? This is a big thing we see in Scripture over and over and over again. We see God sending. God isn't generally asking people, hey, you're sitting here, and I want you to sit in one spot for 90 years of your life. I can't really think of an opportunity in Scripture where God says, hey, you be stuck here and don't do anything and battle your anxious thoughts and lose to them, and that's your calling for life. That's not really what God does. God is a God who's sending. So we're going to look at the very beginning real quick. I'm not going to read every single part. I want to show you there's three actions that God takes in this first chapter. God's going to do blank. God's going to do blank, and God's going to do blank. Let's see the first thing. Here's chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, even though you don't want to go there, even though you hate them, even though you think they're awful. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. So, this is a thing that happens over and over and over. God says to people, get up and go. We see this a bunch of times in the Old Testament. There's this guy, Abram. Abram is this kind of complicated old guy, and he's a son of Terah. And God says, hey, get up and go on a long, slow walk of faith. And at the end of it, the entire earth is going to be blessed because of you. Then there's this guy, Moses, who's an actual murderer. And he runs into the wilderness because he committed an actual illegal murder. And God says, get up and go back to where you committed your actual murder and go confront the head leader of the legal system and of that country, remembering that you're an actual murderer, and have him release all the slaves. God does this to a guy named Gideon. God says, hey, Gideon, you're the most insignificant person from the most insignificant tribe. Awesome. Get up and go and battle against this scary group. God says to Samuel, hey, you're a little boy. You've been given up by your mom for service in the temple, in the tabernacle at the time. Hey, get up and go and be a brave leader right before we're going to have kings. You're not going to get the credit. You're not going to get all the authority. And you're not going to get the gold crown, but you're going to get all the blame. Everyone's going to hate you and despise you and criticize you like you're the king. So get up and go. Last month, let's do a review. We had this guy, Jeremiah. It's the end of Israel. It's the end of Judah. And God says, hey, you're young. You're like 16, 17. Get up and go. You're going to speak to the nations. And so that brings us to Jonah. God says, hey, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. I don't care if you don't like them. 
I don't care if you want me to destroy them. Go, get up, and go. Now, here's my question. Did you notice that in all of these scenarios, God says, get up from ordinary life and go in faith? We're calling this faith after failure. So the ordinary life, you can think of it as the, some of you are nerds, I'm a nerd. If you know the hero's journey, you're in an ordinary world, and we want adventure. So here's the adventure, here's the opportunity. Get up from your ordinary, boring, or not boring, busy life, and go somewhere in faith. This is a constant theme we see in Scripture over and over and over. I showed you in the Old Testament, showed you with Jonah, and it happens in the New Testament too. We see that we have the opportunity to go from one place to somewhere else. So let me give you a strategy. If you have your cell phone, I want you to go to your timers, and you can set an alarm. Set an alarm each day for 10.02 a.m. Because in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus gives us a command. Isn't that helpful? We come to church and we're like, I wish Jesus would show up and talk directly to me. So Jesus is showing up through his word and talking directly to you. Ready? He says this, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, pray to the Lord of harvest that he'll send more workers. What does that mean? That means we see that in our world, it's really awful right now. It's really divided. It's really polarized. We don't have the answers in our brains, us here. We can only make, wor make it worse if we get mad at more people, if we get frustrated, if we white-knuckle it and dig. So instead, we can pause and we can pray. And we can say, Lord, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Send Christians to that place that I really have trouble with those people. So if you set that alarm, it went off this past week. I was with a friend and we were in Panera. And I turned to my friend and said, let's pray for the workers and people of Panera. Not that we wanted to embarrass them, not that we wanted to hit them over the head with the Bible, but we just said, hey, we have an opportunity. Send Christians here. Help this be a place because Panera is a place of welcome and hospitality and it's a community center. Lord, use that for your purposes for restoration, redemption, reconciliation in our community. Couldn't we use more of that? So here's my question for you. And it's a big one. And it's a hard one. And I'm so sorry. But where is God asking you to get up from and go to? It doesn't necessarily mean California or somewhere overseas. In your ordinary life, God says to Jonah, hey, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. Maybe you have a Nineveh. Maybe you have a group of people you really, really don't like. But they'd be kind of open to you getting to know them. Maybe God is saying directly to you, hey, go make friends with your neighbor who makes everybody uncomfortable because of the political sign in their yard. Just go befriend them. They're a person underneath their political sign. You don't like it. It's a yard sign, and it's obnoxious, and you wish it wasn't in your neighborhood. That's a person. That's an image bearer made in the image of God. Go, not try to argue with them, not try to change their opinion, befriend them. Get up and go. Am I saying amen to being missional with my life? What does missional mean? It means not being static, not being a consumer. We are trained to be consumers. We are trained from a little kid age. I see this with my children. And I'm not trashing lines, but I'll use this as an example. 
to stand in line, to wait in line, to do what we're told, to consume, to amass debt, and to be kind of miserable. That's not missional. Jesus says something different. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, pray to the Lord. That sounds different. God says to Jonah, hey, get up and go from your ordinary life to Nineveh, to us. Let's be missional with our lives. Let's not just say, I'm trapped with this young preacher who doesn't know what he's doing. Let's say, amen, God. I'm working on my amen to let God take me where I need to go. And so, yes, God is a God who's sending, and we're working on our amen, and we don't want to say ouch. But here's my next question. So we start with seeing this action that God sends Jonah. Well, what happens when Jonah runs away? God pursues him. Am I saying amen, or am I saying ouch when God pursues me in my life? Let's take a look right here. Verses 3 and 4. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction, to get away from the Lord. Now, I want to pause. I don't know a lot. I'm only your pastor. But isn't God, like, omnipresent, like, everywhere, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, and, like, all-knowing? Yeah? So can we run away from God? And, like, Jonah knows God. So, like, isn't this kind of stupid? Like, not S-T-U-P-I-D, but, like, S-T-O-O-P-I-D? Okay, just checking. All right, let's see. I just wanted to make sure, because like, I feel like you can't run away from the Lord, Jonah, but he thinks you can. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? Spain. It's Spain. Jonah's in Israel. He's trying to go to the other end of the Mediterranean. It's Spain. He's trying to go literally to the other end of the earth. Verse 4. But the Lord, see, when God pursues me, hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Interesting. This is another thing we see over and over in Scripture. God pursues. You see that God had a mission for Jonah. Jonah said, forget you, God. Remember that, uh, that song, Forget You? So God, Jonah says, forget you, God. I'm going to try to run away. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to sail to Spain so God pursues him with a storm. We see this in the New Testament. Let me give you a Jesus example. Jesus says in a heavenly story, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, he says this. He says, you know, there's 100 sheep and there's a lost one. There's 99 in the pen, but one gets away. And the good shepherd is sent, pursues the one and brings the one back to the 99. Then there's this kind of nasty, angry guy named Paul. Well, his name is Saul at the time. And he has this idea that he's kind of like Jonah, truthfully. He thinks that God's all about judgment and anger and wrath and rules. And so Jonah and Saul have a lot in common. And Saul is on his way to Damascus because he celebrated having this guy Stephen killed. And he's ready to go ahead and round up some more early Christians and kill them too. And he's pursued by a blinding light. And Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. And so we see this is a key recurring motif in Scripture over and over and over. People are disobedient. God pursues. God doesn't just say, well, you said forget me, forget you, because there's 8 billion people on this earth. Isn't that ridiculous? 8 billion. We just hit 8 billion. That's what it said a couple months ago. 8 billion. God doesn't ignore me 
when I'm disobedient, say there's like 8 billion others, God pursues me. And we see it over and over. Now, we talked last week about a guy named Chuck Colson. If you remember anything about Chuck Colson, he was the hatchet man for Nixon. He was a young man who was brilliant and had degrees and had training, and there was no compromise he wouldn't make towards his goals. And he ended up a fraud, a phony. He got convicted, indicted, all those. And he gave his life to Jesus during this process, and God pursued him, but still it was time to go to prison. And he knew that he needed to go to jail, and so did he? He did. And he went with the other cronies from the Watergate scandal and some mafiosos. And one of the first things he do is, did is he started a Bible study. And he had a Christian group in prison because he knew that God pursues people even in jail. Jail's like the farthest we can get away from God on earth, isn't it? It seems like the most isolated and lonely and difficult place but Chuck Colson knew, wow, even in jail, Jesus is there. Even in jail, God can pursue us. And when he got out, everybody quickly wanted to forgive Chuck. They said, hey, uh, you did some bad stuff and you did your time. We're going to go ahead and give you a six-figure offer. Why don't you come work for us? And Chuck said, no, um, I'm going to found a, something different. And he founded Prison Fellowship. And it really brought prison ministry to the forefront of the American church. And here's the thing with it, and this is so important. In my times of disobedience, how has God pursued me? Chuck Colson knew he could be on the road to jail, and God was there. He knew he could be in the jail cell, and God was there. He knew he could be coming out of the jail cell, and God was pursuing him. God was there. Now, we have a really good way to look at God pursuing us. It's called the gospel. Sometimes we say words like the gospel and they don't mean a whole lot to us. We hear the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? So I want to show you what the gospel is, but I want to make it simple. I want you, this is the only time I'm going to make you interact, put up your hand. It doesn't have to be high, but give me five fingers. I'm going to give you five words for the gospel because it's a way to understand how God pursues us. Check this out. Finger number one, you can start in your thumb, you can start in your pinky, doesn't matter, you pick. Dealer's choice. Now, creation. Perfect God created a perfect world perfectly. Fall, sin entered the world, things got weird. Powerless, no amount of good works, optimism, legalism, moralism can ever make up for our sin problem that's real. Jesus, we celebrate him at Christmas. He came as a baby. Perfect God fully human, fully God, came into the world, lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, rose again, and all we have to do is have faith. What is faith? Faith is saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't do it myself. I need Jesus. Lord, would you have him come into my life and change me, and now can I live a new way? Because the gospel is not some five-point checklist. The danger with me giving you five fingers is now I gave you a checklist. The gospel is evidence that the work of Christ, the work of Jesus, saturates every part of my life, every way, every day. So here's my question for you. Am I saying amen to the gospel, or am I saying ouch? Am I looking and saying, wow, this can change my life, and maybe I've accepted Jesus in my heart, and maybe 
I'm not there yet. So that gets us to what happens when God has already saved me. Because we conclude our story by seeing that Jonah is going to really have this kind of conversion faith thing maybe, but it's going to be kind of out of his hands. You saw this earlier. I won't read all the rest of the passage. I'll read one last verse in a minute. But what we see is that Jonah thinks he can run from God. He can't. And eventually sailors are going to throw him in the water. Not his choice. Not really. And he's going to sink and something's going to happen. God is going to save him. He's not going to do the saving. Here's what it says. The Lord had arranged. Isn't it funny how God does that? If you're here today, the Lord has arranged for you to be here. It's your choice what you do with it. But the Lord has arranged for you to be here. Now, the Lord has arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. I want to show you something. Jonah's not surrendering. Do you see that? He's just kind of a man in circumstances. He's just, here he is. Number two, you're going to see that this is validated with all the rest of our month of September when we look at Jonah. You're going to see this is not, not really a changed guy. He's going to fool you next week when we see his prayer of thankfulness inside the whale's belly or the big fish's belly. I was corrected by a six-year-old this week who said, David, you're the pastor. It's a big fish in the Bible, not a whale. True story. That really happened on Wednesday night. Now, here's another thing. Oh, we love, love our theological six-year-olds. They're great. I was one once. Look what happened to me. Now, uh, so he's been saved, but he hasn't been made more like Jesus, right? So he's been saved from dying and drowning, but he's just kind of miserable now in the whale's belly. And Maybe he's going to profess that he loves God, but when we say we love God, when we're not really working on our amen, but we're just kind of ouch, like, I guess I love God. This is uncomfortable that I'm here. The pastor's going on too long. I can't believe we don't have air conditioning at the church. The whale's belly is so stinky. I wish that we had a candelabra. Whatever it is, right? We have all our things. And we're not really changed. We're just kind of grumpy. That's where Jonah finds himself. He's kind of like the guy who's what I call the perpetual visitor to church. For 47 years, you visit. You never really get plugged in. We love you. We're so glad you're here. But, but you never really get plugged in. We got faith groups, our small groups. You never really join a faith group. Um, we've got big events. You don't really ever come to our rib off or our fellowship time. You just kind of leave, which we're glad you're here. Um, we don't really see you serve. We're glad you're here. But he's kind of like that perpetual visitor. And I'll give you one more. He's kind of like the perpetual Eeyore. You know that person. You work with that person, don't you? Every single one of you works with, knows with, lives next to, or is a perpetual Eeyore. Don't be the perpetual Eeyore. Because don't say, ouch, when God already saved me. Say, amen. Last week, we looked at digging. We looked at digging. We talked about digging is any time that I say, hey, God, I know best. So I dig. I start fighting with my coworkers, and I start telling my spouse off, and I start being really harsh and judgmental with my kids because I know best and because they need to hear, and even though the last 19,000 times I yelled at them, they didn't hear it, they'll get it this time, and I dig and dig and dig and dig even though they're 47 years old and have kids of their own and live in California. 
And I dig and dig and dig and dig and then wonder why I'm not invited to Thanksgiving dinner and I dig and dig and dig. What happens when digging stops? Jonah's digging has stopped temporarily. He's just in the whale's belly. Here he is. He gets to choose what he does. He doesn't really fully surrender his life. What does full life surrender really start to look like? What's like the fruit of that? I'll give you three things. There's plenty more, but here's three. I say, amen, so be it, Lord, to Jesus in my heart. That means that when I feel grumpy, I think, hmm, I'm feeling grumpy right now. Lord, would you do a work and soften my heart? That means when I'm just feeling really a lot like the negative naysayer of Nabom, that I say, hmm, okay, in my heart, Lord, to obey is better than sacrifice. Would you do a work in my heart? That means that when the Patriots lose this afternoon and I want to smash my TV, I say, because I'm so mad that they did whatever they did with Bailey Zappi, and I still can't figure out what sort of backroom deal they have, and I say, Lord, would you do a work in my heart? Thank you, Jesus. Now, I'm silly because I want you to get the point. In my marriage, the digging is not helpful. Can I stop the digging and now say, real surrender means not always being right. Real surrender means having the humility to pray with my spouse. It's awkward, my friends, when you start doing it. It's awkward. Let's acknowledge it. When you go from not praying with your spouse to praying with your spouse, it's awkward. For a while, embrace the awkward. Lean into it. Be like Rose and Jack on the Titanic. Lead into that awkwardness. Stand up there and be like, this is so awkward and so good for my marriage. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. And with my household, with my children, if I have little kids, am I praying with them and for them? If I have older kids, am I praying for them? Am I really saying my life is not my life, but God has given me the opportunity to be here and to serve? I'm working on my amen. Your pastor is. I'm in a new season of my life. So many of you are. Let's look at our big idea. I'm working on my amen, and hopefully you are too. What does that mean? That means a number of things. Number one, here's some implications. Write it down if you need. Number one, I'm working on my amen. I need to see, say amen when God sends me somewhere. If it's uncomfortable, I need to lean into that. If I don't want to do it, got to lean into it. Number two, am I saying amen to the gospel? If I haven't said amen to the gospel, if I haven't welcomed the Lord into my life and been saved, we're going to invite elders forward. Elders, hey guys and ladies, love you. We're going to bring you forward. We're going to bring some elders and retired pastors. They're going to become forward as our worship team comes for the end of our service. So please come now. If I haven't said amen to the gospel, I can say amen to the gospel and now start living following Jesus. And then am I saying amen to discipleship, to being made more like Jesus, to learning and studying and living different so that I'm not the perpetual visitor? We're going to do a prayer point. We're going to keep it simple today. Where in your life are you saying ouch to God? We'll invite you to come down as the last song begins. We want to pray for you. We don't think that this is a silver bullet, and we know that it can be uncomfortable. Lean into the uncomfortable. You're always welcome to come for healing, for prayers of peace, prayers for friends. But as our last song comes, I'm going to pray over us, and then I invite you to come down. We're going to pray for you. We want to pray for you. And let's see what the Lord's doing in our community. Heavenly Father, thank you for our surrender. 
Lord, help us say amen to you today. In your holy name we pray. Amen.